At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Today we're going to be continuing a sermon series we began a couple of weeks ago called Mission Brief as we've been talking about the mission that God has called us to. We're being briefed on the mission that God has called us to be a part of. And we've seen that this mission involves us following Jesus in this life and spreading the aroma of Christ everywhere we go. Commissioned by God, speaking the words of Christ, transforming lives. This is the purpose of our lives. It's why God has us here, to live in relationship with him and to give glory to him by following him on mission in this life. But, you know, as, as we say that, as we reflect on that, as we think about that, you, you might be asking a very similar question that the Apostle Paul asked back in chapter 2, verse 16. Who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient to follow Jesus and to spread the aroma of Christ everywhere we go? Who is sufficient to be a pen dipped in the inkwell of the Spirit, written onto the hearts of men and women? Who is sufficient to be commissioned by God, to be speaking the words of Christ as we go? Who is sufficient for such things? Paul asked it. You've probably asked it. And if you haven't asked it over the last couple of Sundays, you may have asked it in the past when someone asked you to serve in Jesus' name. Someone came up to you and said, hey, would you like to serve in our children's ministry? And you think, who am I? I'm not sufficient for this task. Somebody said, why don't you mentor a young person, a college student or a high schooler? Who am I? I'm not sufficient for this task. You felt the prompting of the Spirit to go down the street and to share Christ with your neighbor, and you thought, I'm insufficient for this task. I don't have all the answers. My life is not perfect. See, we often see the call of God, and we respond with this notion of, I'm just insufficient for the task. We think of it as if we're going for a job interview with God himself, and we are asked to prepare our resume. And so we go in with our resume, and under the education section, God says, okay, you're going to serve in in Wildwood student ministry. It says here that you were in Sunday school for 12 years. Is that correct? Yes, I was. Um, Did you come every Sunday? No, I missed several. Okay, and imagine God writing down, well, not fully educated. And then we think, well, what about, what about your experience? It says here that, that you went to summer camp. Was that as a participant or was that as a counselor? And we say, as a participant, okay. Or we say, as a counselor, but that's just because there was this cute girl that invited me to go too. And then we think of our qualifications and skills, and God says, well, well, you're to be holy as I am holy. How holy are you? And like, there's a lot of holes in my holiness. I got a lot of issues, a lot of problems, a lot of struggles, and we imagine God writing down, and then God looking at us and saying, uh, frankly, um, I don't know how you got in here, but you do not have the necessary qualifications for the task. That's how we assume the situation would go. But instead, friends, what we see in Scripture is that we come and we present our resume and we hand it across the table. And you know what our Heavenly Father does? He takes a stamp, puts it in ink, 
stamps grace on top of it, slides it back across the table and says, you're in. This is what God has done for us. By his grace, he has made us sufficient for a task that otherwise is well beyond us. And today, what we're going to do is we're going to see how that is possible and how Paul talks about that in part three of this series in chapter three, verses four through 18. So if you've got a Bible, take it out and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter three, beginning in verse four. I wanna read these verses for us, and then after I read them, we'll back up and make three observations today before we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. The Apostle Paul writes to his friends in Corinth and says this, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, friends, in these few verses today, I want us to see three things about how God has made us sufficient for the mission that he has called us to. So what are those things? The first thing I want us to see is his all-sufficient grace. I want us to see his all-sufficient grace. Now, we see this in verses 4, 5, and 6, but where do we see that in those verses? Well, Paul begins and he says, such is the confidence. Paul has confidence. Just a few verses earlier, he says, who is sufficient for such things? And yet, in chapter 3, verse 4, he says that he has a confidence, and he has a confidence toward God. Not that he was deceiving anyone, but he has a confidence that God could actually use him. Not that people could think that God was using him, but toward God, he he believes that God could use him for this mission. Well, how could that possibly be the case? Well, he wants us to know that it's not because we are sufficient in ourselves. Not that we are sufficient. Now, this word sufficient, we, we use this word sometimes in financial circles, don't we? We think of it in terms of, of banking, I'll give you an example that maybe will help us understand this. If I were today to write a check for $50,000 and I were to try to cash it someplace, you know what my bank would tell me? My bank would tell me that there are insufficient funds for that check to clear. I can write it. 
but it wouldn't accomplish anything. And what Paul was saying here is he says, in and of ourselves, there aren't sufficient funds to accomplish the mission that God has called us to. There's not sufficient holiness in and of ourselves. There's not sufficient giftedness in and of ourselves. There's not sufficient anything in and of ourselves to accomplish the mission that God has called us to. Remember, speaking on behalf of Christ, changing lives, spreading the aroma of Christ everywhere. We are insufficient in ourselves for that task. We might try to do it. We might try to sign a check, but there aren't funds for the check to clear. But there's more to the story, isn't there? He says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but he continues, but our sufficiency is from God. In other words, what he's saying is is that that though there is insufficient funds, insufficient righteousness, insufficient giftedness, insufficient power and ability in and of ourselves, what God has done in Christ is he has written an amazing check to cover the balance. God looks at the situation and says, I got it covered. Don't worry about it. It'll clear. Trust me. God makes a deposit that makes us sufficient. Well, how does he do that? How does God do that? What is the sufficiency that comes from God? Well, we might remember several things. The first thing we need to remember is that God came to us. He sent his son Jesus to this world. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In his grace, when we were at our worst, when our resume looked the worst, Jesus came and died on the cross to take the penalty that our sins deserve. By his grace, he reaches out to us and offers us life, offers us forgiveness, offers us future and a hope. That's an amazing deposit that God has made. We want to say, I'm insufficient for the task because I'm a sinner. God says, I sent Jesus to take care of that. Not only that, he made us his children. He made us his children. John chapter 1, verse 12, but to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. We want to look at the situation and say, well, well, who am I? I'm, I'm just from, from Bartlesville. I'm just this, this normal kid. And no, 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 we're not normal, friends. If we have placed our faith and trust in Christ, we are a son or a daughter of the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God who sits sovereign over all things. Wow. We represent him because we are his. He came to us. He made us his children. Not only that, he gives us all spiritual blessings. He gives us all spiritual blessings. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. In Christ, all the blessings in the heavenly places have been extended to us. What an amazing promise this is. Again, we say, I, I, don't, I don't think I have enough. There's not enough power. There's not enough, there's not enough insight. There's not enough anything. God says, how about I give you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? I'll deposit that in your account. God is covering the balance. He gives us his spirit. One of those spiritual blessings is his Holy Spirit that is sent to indwell in the lives of those who have trusted in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, the spirit comes as a deposit, a remaining deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance from the moment that we first believed. What what a statement. And all of this is available through Christ. 
We see this in the verse we read earlier. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. If if Paul had said not through Christ, if Paul had said through my experience as a Pharisee or my education under Gamaliel, we all would be out of luck. But he says through Christ these things have happened to me. Through Christ I've been made sufficient. And so if you have believed in Jesus, God has made you sufficient for the ministry that he has called you to be a part of, the mission that he is briefing us on in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 through 4. God has made us sufficient for this task. But again, if we may be sitting there thinking, okay, I, I, I see this, I understand this, but I still feel like, who am I to be a part of such things? Well, if that's the case, friends, then you are in great company. Because when we look at Scripture, we see a pattern. And that pattern is that when God calls someone to be a part of his mission, if they are thinking correctly, you know how they always respond? Not me. Now, we don't have time to read all these verses, but I would encourage you to look at them later. It's a fascinating study. God comes to Moses. See, we think of Moses, we think of Moses, right? A person with some presence, some gravitas. You know, that's who we think of with Moses. But, but back in the day, he was just Mo, right? And he was a guy that thought he had, he had no future. He had no hope. He was out herding sheep in the wilderness when God came along and said, you're going to represent me. And he said, God, I, I don't speak very well. And God responded and said, Moses, I make mouths. Which one do you want? When we understand this accurately, we understand that we in and of ourselves are inadequate, but God makes us sufficient. Gideon, we think of you, we name our kids Gideon, right? There may be a Gideon in your household that was named after this guy. And we think of Gideon as this mighty warrior, the judge who brought deliverance for the people of God. But Gideon himself did not count himself as a mighty warrior. He was threshing wheat in the valley. No one does that but cowards because he was scared to death when God called him to the task. God said, Gideon, I'm, I'm going to win this victory through you, and I'm going to take your army down so small that you can't miss the fact that I'm the one who's doing this. I am your sufficiency. Same thing with Isaiah. Isaiah sees vision of the Lord. Woe is me. I'm a person of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. And God says, let me clean you up here, Isaiah, that you might go and represent me. The same with Jeremiah. The same with Mary in the New Testament. This is a pattern, friends. It's a pattern again and again and again. Right-thinking people, in light of the mission that God has called us to, say, who am I? I can't. And God says, that's true. You can't, but I can through you. This is the gospel. This is the hope that we have. It's sufficient in Christ. And we are sufficient for what? Sufficient to enter heaven? Yes. Sufficient to be equipped by the work of the Spirit, to be able to overcome temptation in life? Yes. But even more than that, if we have trusted in Christ, we have been made a minister. You realize that? We have been made a minister a minister of a new covenant. You might have walked in here today thinking, who am I? But I'm here to tell you that God has called you to acts of service in his name. He has called you to a mission in his name. Make no mistake about it. We are ministers of a new covenant. Now, to say that we are ministers of a new covenant implies that there was something old. I mean, we can't have a new covenant if there wasn't an old covenant. And in fact, there was an old covenant. 
We think of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, roughly associate them with the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, the New Covenant in the New Testament. And Paul here makes some comments about the Old and the New. He says of the Old Covenant, he says that it was a covenant of the letter and a covenant of death or killing in some fashion. Now, what is he referring to? Well, what he's referring to is that the old covenant was given externally on tablets. When Moses went up on Mount Sinai, God wrote it down on tablets of stone, and they were brought down, and it was God's word, and it was law, and it was true, but it was a weighty thing to carry. It it brought with it an inability to live it out, but just a revelation of the standard, and it was like a heavy weight on the shoulders of the people of Israel, and it revealed to them their sinfulness. It reminded them that their sins were worthy of death. Paul would say of this in Romans chapter 7, verses 10 and 11, that the law killed him. The law slayed him in some way. What he meant was the law revealed to him his inadequacy. It revealed to him his sinfulness, and it carried with it no empowerment to meet the standard. Even the very place, the center of worship under the old covenant was the temple. And what happened in the temple? Lots of things died. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. The old covenant was a covenant of the letter, external, and it was a covenant of death in some ways. In contrast, friends, there is a new covenant. And that new covenant is a covenant of the Spirit and a covenant that gives life where God would deliver his law, not externally on tablets, but internally into our hearts. And God would not just say, this is the standard, good luck, but God would say, this is the power through my Holy Spirit to enable you to walk and to obey and to follow me. An amazing change, an amazing covenant, an amazing upgrade. And this new covenant, friends, is something that was talked about throughout the Old Testament. Two different places I want to highlight where this new covenant was mentioned. One is in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33, where Jeremiah uh, speaking here, God speaking through Jeremiah says this, I will make a new covenant. There's that phrase. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts, not on stone tablets out here, but I will write it on the interior of their being. I will be their God and they shall be my people. God's law would no longer be a weight to crush us, but it would be the path of the abundant life as we follow him. And living that out, not just written on the interior of our lives, but empowered by the Holy Spirit. Again, God speaks through Ezekiel the prophet in Ezekiel 36, and he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Long before Jesus came to the earth through the prophet Ezekiel, God said, there will come a day when I will place my spirit inside of those who trust in me. An amazing thing, talking here about the new covenant. I don't know if you remember a few weeks ago, but when we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, we saw this statement. He says, for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Do you see now why he would say that? 
All of history has longed to see the day when God would initiate this new covenant, a definite upgrade over the old. And those promises to write his law on our hearts and not on tablets, and those promises to not just point out the way, but to give the Spirit to enable the way, those were promises that find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. What an amazing statement. What what an incredible opportunity. God has offered this to us. And so, the next time an opportunity comes available to you, you feel the prompting of the Spirit to go down the street and share the gospel with a neighbor or with a coworker or a family member, or you, you get an invitation to mentor someone or to be a part of the leadership of a Bible study or a Sunday school class or whatever the prompting might be. When you get that, if you begin to think, who am I? I am insufficient. Guess what? Great that you're thinking that. Because in and of yourself, that is true. But also remember 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, and remember the incredible deposit of God's grace that has made you sufficient for that task. As a matter of fact, believing that we are insufficient is part of the qualifications to serve. You realize that? If that's not on your spiritual resume, then you're probably doing it wrong because we are insufficient. I love what Oswald Chambers says. He says, God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities and resources. Friends, when we begin to realize that we ourselves are insufficient, but God is sufficient, we will trust him for bigger and bigger things, and we will live on the mission that he has called us to. So the first thing we have seen is his all-sufficient grace. But the second thing that we need to see is his all-surpassing glory, his all-surpassing glory. Now, we see this in verses 7 through 11 as he compares the all-surpassing glory of the new covenant to that of the old And so as we look at these verses, I want to point out some of the distinctions between the Old Covenant that was given through the Ten Commandments and was lived out in the Old Testament days and contrast it with this amazing New Covenant that we live in as New Covenant, New Testament era followers of Jesus. The Old Covenant is described this way. It's described as the ministry of death. Again, thinking about how it points out the standard that we are unable to live up. And and inside of the temple, there was sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. The ministry of death is how he describes it. Letters carved on stone, like the Ten Commandments. Outside, weighty, defining the standard, but providing no ability to reach it. He calls it a ministry of condemnation. It just reminds him of his sinfulness without the hope of forgiveness. He talks about what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. In other words, the old covenant in its day was glorious. But compared to the new covenant, it is not glorious at all. We'll talk more about that in just a second. But he points that out here. And then he says that it was being brought to an end. It was fading. The old covenant would have a a shelf life there would be a point where it would be replaced by a new covenant in Jesus' blood. Now, what do we see about the new covenant in contrast to this? 
Well, we saw that it was a covenant of life. We saw that back in verse 6. But what else do we see? It's also a covenant that is a ministry of the Spirit. Again, like we saw in Ezekiel 36, God's Spirit given into the hearts of believers. It was not a ministry of condemnation. It was a ministry of righteousness. Not just pointing out a standard that we would be unable to attain, but the gift of the Spirit that would enable us to live it out. And he says that this must far exceed it in glory, glory that surpasses it. Again, going back to what he said earlier about the other covenant, the old covenant had plenty of glory in it. In its day, it was bright. We might think of it this way, if, if we were to turn out all the lights in this room and you were to take out your cell phone and turn on your flashlight, we would, we would look around the room and that flashlight would provide some light and we would say, look, that is a glorious light in the midst of the darkness. But when we leave this service, if we were to go out in the parking lot and you were to take that same flashlight and continue to shine it, how impressive would its light be in the, in the light of noonday sun? It would be within the margin of error. We would not even be able to recognize it because the light of day would have so overpowered it. This is what he's saying. In, in comparison, the new covenant, as Jesus rises to noonday, as the sun is shining in the new covenant, the Son of God, the light of the Old Testament is almost blinded as a result because it finds its meaning in the fulfillment that Christ brought in his life and in his ministry. The glory surpasses it, and it has come in a permanent way. The old covenant was fading, but the new covenant will go on forever and ever and ever. The new covenant replaced the old because Jesus fulfilled it and transitioned to something far better. This is what we see in Hebrews chapter 8 when the author says this, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Friends, we live in an amazing time in history. And because we live in it, we don't recognize just how amazing it is. Do you realize that the, the people who walked with God in the Old Testament era longed to see the day that we live in? They longed to see the time when this old covenant would be upgraded and replaced by something far greater, that God's law would not be out there but would be in here that God's Spirit would not be occasionally resting on the life of a prophet or a miracle worker, but God's Spirit would reside in our hearts in an ongoing way. The Old Testament saints, friends, longed for this day. We are living in it, and sometimes we forget that. We live on the right side of history in so many ways. God has given us a gift. We have won the historical lottery because if we'd have lived in the B.C. era, we would have been hoping that one day God would bring this to pass. But we live in the A.D. era. Therefore, this is the gift that God has extended to us. So that not only can we rest and thank God for that, but also we, when we go and share the gospel with someone, we are not sharing with them an inferior message, but we are offering them the absolute best. As ministers of the gospel, we are not going out sharing a used car that is breaking down, 
but we are sharing state-of-the-art God's amazing gift of grace and life in Christ. And so we see the all-surpassing glory that God has invited us to be a part of, his all-sufficient grace, his all-surpassing glory. But the third thing I want us to see is this, his all-transforming spirit, his all-transforming spirit. Now, we see this in verses 12 through 18. Well, what do we see in those verses? Again, he's continuing this contrast between the old and the new. And so, he's going to be talking here about Moses. Moses would go up on the mountain. Now, it's interesting. I'm, I'm doing a one-year Bible reading plan, and just yesterday, I was reading Exodus 34. Um, I didn't sync these things up. God just sometimes does this. And Exodus 34 is the passage where Moses goes up on the mountaintop, He meets with God, and his time with God is so amazing that his face begins to glow. Now, that's never happened to me, but I think that's happened to David Williams in a few quiet times, I think. Um, But, but, you know, this is is what happens. He meets with the Lord, and his whole countenance changes. He is transformed in some way so that when he comes back down, the people are, are able to look at Moses and say, he met with God. Now, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty remarkable, isn't it? But the people were hard-hearted. The people were too busy building cows to worship instead. And so, what happened? Well, Moses needed to put a veil on. And that veil protected the nation from being accountable to the full weight of the transformation that was available in God. The sad thing is that veil remained. And that veil remains today for Jewish people who have not trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And that same veil also exists on the, over the hearts and lives of all who have rejected Christ. They look and they, they, they see shadows, but they can't make out the real truth. You know, I, when I was a kid, I actually danced in the Nutcracker several times. I know that's really hard for you to, but why are you laughing? Um, it's fine ballet up in Bartlesville. Um, I was in it not because I was a good dancer, but because my sister was, and they needed little boys in this one part. So I got to do it a couple of times, but um, there was a part at the beginning of that, of that ballet where there, would be, there was a scrim that was dropped And with the scrim, it enabled them to shine a light on the front, and you couldn't see what was happening behind. In a very similar way, there's a veil that that just prevents people from seeing the reality of what God is doing. I, I, I love what Scott Hafeman says. He says, this veil not only preserves Israel from being destroyed, but it also keeps her from being transformed. So what needs to happen? The veil needs to be lifted. Well, how is the veil lifted? How is the veil lifted so that we might be able to to gaze on God and be transformed as Moses was on the mountain? Well, it happens when one turns to the Lord. When one turns to the Lord because of what Christ has done, the veil is removed. If you are here today and you feel like you have never placed your faith and trust in Christ because it always looks like there's shadows up there, you think there's something to it, but you don't know, there's a spiritual reality that is remedied when we turn to Christ. When we turn to him and we say, remove the veil that I might see, that I might trust in you for the forgiveness of my sins, 
It's amazing. God removes the veil. And when he does, he gives us the gift, the gift of the Spirit to empower us to live the life he's called us to live. We are able with unveiled face to behold the glory of the Lord, to look into Scripture, to read it, and to understand who God really is. And as we gaze at it, our lives begin to change. We are transformed into the image of Christ from glory to glory. In other words, we have a glorious future when we trust in him and we're forgiven, but our, we still have challenges in our lives, don't we? Well, God is in the business of transforming us from glory to glory. That as we stare into his word and as we respond in faith, that God is actually transforming us so that we might resemble our Savior. Not in appearance, but actually in the fruits that our lives produce. This comes from the spirit of the Lord that is in us. You know, often in our lives, we, we have this experience, and the experience goes like this. We go away and we go to camp, or we go away and go to the retreat, and we come back and we feel like we have met with God in the moment, and then we feel like it's, it's just beginning to fade as we come home. Friends, that has been some of your experience, and I can say it's been some of my experience too at different times. But we need to be reminded of what is really true. You realize that God doesn't live in the campground? God doesn't live on the mountaintop? God doesn't live on the mission trip? You know where, where God lives? I mean, he, he lives in those places, but you know where he lives? According to this, he lives inside of us. And if we have trusted Christ, then the Spirit of God lives inside of us. And we can, in an unfettered way, look upon his glory that we might be transformed in an ongoing way more into the image of his Son. Friends, our lives need transformation, but so do the lives of those around us. So not only do we stare upon Christ that we might be transformed, but we also invite others to come to him that they might be forgiven and transformed as well. There's an all-sufficient grace, an all-surpassing glory, and an all-transforming spirit. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for just your, your love and your life and your spirit that you have given to us. This new covenant that has made us sufficient not only to have a relationship with you, which would be amazing, but actually to be ministering in your name. Dear Lord, may we be a people who remember this covenant, remember this empowerment, remember this mission and this calling, and walk with you faithfully into it in the days ahead. We thank you, and we remember the death that Jesus died to make it possible now as we celebrate the Lord's table together. In Jesus' name, amen.